Takwaye now presents Night of the Dragon, Part 1, from the Shadow of the Fox Trilogy, by Julie Kagawa. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Katie Bradford. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week we started the third book in the Shadow of the Fox trilogy by Julie Kagawa. We started Night of the Dragon. And we read up to part three. And we are getting very close to the true Night of the Dragon. I know. We haven't met a dragon yet. Well, we kind of did. But we haven't met the dragon. Yeah, we've met several dragon-like creatures this time though (laughs) yes some have eight heads (laughs) some are part deer part dragon but they're good so (laughs) a whole lot of uh strange yokai in this in this section it is funny i was thinking about i know we've talked about this but the first book how lost i was and (laughs) i was like i actually don't think this book is significantly different i've just sort of gotten on board with this and I'm invested and I like know enough about the characters that I'm okay but there still are so many new creatures and just like the scene keeps changing significantly and we have all these really dramatic battles and it's just high stakes all the time (laughs) that's totally a good point like if I hadn't been in this world for so long like some of these scenes would have jarred me so much But now I'm just like, oh, yeah, there's masked walking dead people carrying scissors that are about to attack you. Nope, no big deal. (laughs) Uh, There's so many kinds of dead people. (laughs) (laughs) Most of whom seem bad. But, okay, should we, so we had just, at the end of the last book, lost all the scroll pieces, but saved everybody's life, technically. Pretty much. Tatsumi may or may he we're still unsure how tatsumi tatsumi is versus how what's his name hakimono he is it's tough to know but he does seem like he (laughs) is solid like it doesn't feel like he's oscillating between the two it just feels like he's a new thing with both memories sort of but i don't feel like I mean, I know, I guess he's had these, like, I sort of still have bloodlust and stuff, but I don't feel like it's, like, an internal battle the same way it was before. Like, I feel like he's, he's not sure what he is, but he is a thing. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Um, yes, because, so Tatsumi and Hakimono are now joined in one soul, and Mm -hmm. I agree that it doesn't seem like they were fighting for control. They seem to be, like, existing harmoniously together. There were a couple cases when you can totally see when Hakimono takes over and when Tatsumi goes away. Like, there was one point where Tatsumi was talking and then all of a sudden, like, in the middle of a sentence, he abruptly started talking about how he wanted to get revenge. And I was like, oh, oh, now it's Hakimono. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, they definitely both are influencing him and... Again, he has memories from both. It's just, it's an interesting, especially when we see his perspective again, because we're still alternating in these chapters and some of them are from his perspective. 
But you even see him, like, internally being like, I don't know, like, which side of me this is. But they're not at war the same way. They're trying to meld, but they're not, like, actually at war. Because they both do have the same goal. Like, the goal right now Mm -hmm. is they want to stop Jeno from summoning the dragon. Yeah, for different reasons. Good, bad. Yeah. (laughs) But they, so they do have a common enemy. I think it is weird that, like, Tatsumi feels like he never knows when Hakimono's gonna take over and, like, He's mm-hmm. feeling, like, bouts of his rage. And, like, there was that one moment where he randomly, like, had an urge to slaughter all of his friends. <laughs> yeah, I did forget about that. That's true. And I think that's weird because, like, Tatsumi was always so in control of his emotions. Like, that was he, was what he was trained to do. That's what he spent his entire life doing was, like, control, control, control. And now he doesn't have control over his emotions because he has this other demon possessing his soul so I think like that's the struggle that I think he's facing more than anything that's such an interesting point too because part of that uncontrolled emotion is actually his love for our kitsune Mm -hmm. yumiko and even though it's like that's not really the demon side of him because the demon side of him doesn't love but this uncontrolled emotion is sort of from the demon influence so it is kind of a funny (laughs) combination of how like his Tatsumi-ness and his Hakimono-ness have merged. (laughs) Very true. Um, Speaking of Yumiko, so she is under threat at the beginning of this book. She was under threat from Lady Hanshu now because uh, originally Lady Hanshu wanted Yumiko because she knew she needed her to, you know, lead Tatsumi to the Steel Feather Temple. And now she has no use for her, so she sends her shinobi, her ninjas, to attack. Yeah, and they were pretty clever because they basically lured Hakimono away, Mm -hmm. but they didn't know that she was Kitsune, so luckily her Kitsune magic uh, saved the day again, but um, it was a close call. I know. Yeah, they were like, why would she turn on us? We did what she asked, and it's like, oh no, she's tying up loose ends. She's just not... A trustworthy person. Oh gosh, not at all. Currently, again, we're kind of aligned temporarily, but I do not trust her. And there's definitely more to the backstory between her and Hakimono. Oh, for sure. Because we have that scene, there's like a flashback at the beginning of this book when Hakimono is summoned by Lady Hanshu, and she's the one who asked him to bring her the scroll like a thousand years ago. Yeah, and leave no witnesses behind. Right. So they have a definitely a complicated relationship. And that was when she also sent Kaje Hiro Taka to find the scroll too. And that's when like Hakimono stopped him and killed his entire family. And that's when Hiro Taka asked the dragon for the power to make Hakimono suffer. So like, it all comes back to Lady Hanshu. I know, like he might have left witnesses or not destroyed everyone or just gone about it differently if he wasn't I don't know. Yeah, it's all her fault, really. (laughs) He's in the sort. (laughs) Oh, speaking of witnesses, how sad was it? So during the attack, we see um, Tatsumi's friend, Ayame. She was the distraction Mm -hmm. to um, kind of lead everyone away. And she was Tatsumi's friend. And I hated that scene where she, she knew she couldn't fail in her mission or the clan would kill her, but she also didn't want to kill Tatsumi, so she swallows poison instead. And that was just, like, heartbreaking. Was it that she didn't want to kill him, or was it that she knew she couldn't kill him? Like, Um, I thought she had been defeated. I don't know. I actually 
it was sad, but I sort of wanted more from her. I feel like we know so little about Tatsumi's background and him having a friend, especially a friend who sent to kill. I feel like there just could have been a lot more with that than there was. So I was kind of sad that she's gone because I feel like it was a, a bit of a missed opportunity. That's a super good point. Like it could have, like, even though it was a sad moment, it could have been a more tragic, interesting mm-hmm. moment. If we had known more about her, if we had known more about Tatsumi, because um, that's like, a, I mean, it, yeah, it could have been a great plot point, and instead it was just so rushed that, like, you did feel that pang of like, oh, that's too bad, but it didn't hit home like it could have. Well, and even, like, there, we've seen her, I think, twice before, right? Once when Yumiko was in the cage castle or whatever, and once when Tatsumi was recovering from that first battle that we saw, I think. And and both, you got the sense that they had been friends. I don't know, I just wish, yeah, we would have seen more of them as friends or more of that, like, warmth between them. I almost already felt like she had been jealous or, like, left him. I don't know, just, mm-hmm. I didn't really feel good about their friendship. No, because didn't she want to be the one selected to be the demon slayer? Probably, yeah. <laughs> God knows why you'd want that, though. <laughs> Especially you'd think after seeing your friend go through it, you'd be like, oh, I dodged a bullet, but no. (laughs) Totally. I would just watch from afar being like, better you than me, T. Yeah. (laughs) Especially if you had to kill your dog to get it. Man, oh man. I'll I'll keep my dog. Thanks very much. That's what would have stopped me, for sure. Okay, so yeah, that was our first uh, battle. We did defeat the Shinobi, luckily, and we found out that we can't trust Lady Show, even though we kind of already knew that, but now we really knew it. Second battle. Yeah, then we get to the coast, and we're going to get a boat, as one does, and we walk into town. What's waiting for us there? <laughs> um, more possessed corpses. Yep, bearing sharp objects. More? Have we had corpses yet? I can't even remember. And they're all wearing these masks, which... Somehow it makes it creepier to me. <laughs> it sounds so terrifying. Just a bunch of masked corpses walking around with knives and scissors coming at you. Like, just a visual. And they can't <laughs> feel pain or anything again. So, right? Like, Okami's, like, hitting them with arrows, but it doesn't matter. And this whole town, and think about how much blood magic. There's just actually, if you think about it, there's been so much death yeah. in these books. And I guess I knew that was coming, and we do have, like, an army of demons trying to take over the world, so what do you expect, but... It's a lot. This is one of the first times I feel like we had so much innocent death. Yeah. But it doesn't stop there. <laughs> oh, no. Well, because, yeah, Yumiko, true to her nature, uh, wants to save the whole town. <laughs> well, because she knows it's kind of their fault. I mean, it's not really their fault. I forget who said it. Someone was like, no, Gino's evil and he did this it's not our fault but part of why he did it is because he knew they were coming and he was trying to stop them true true so they do feel like it's their well yumiko feels like it's her responsibility to destroy the source of the blood magic although to your point she probably even if it had nothing to do with her would still be like this is the right thing to do let's help them because we can (laughs) oh totally so she cleverly disguises the whole gang as the walking dead so that they can get into the warehouse and destroy the source of the blood magic. I totally thought someone was going to die in that battle too. Me too, because I thought like, okay, even if you can't, even if you're disguised 
as a walking corpse, like you're still gonna smell differently. And I think eventually they they started to catch on, like, oh wait, this isn't right. Because I don't think the illusions extend to any other sense besides sight, really. Well, okay, I thought that originally, but then remember when she gave the hat to Tatsumi and he could feel it? Mm, that's a good point. So maybe she just has to concentrate more, or I don't know, but <laughs> her, her fox magic is definitely getting stronger. Oh, yeah. And then they got there, and their disguises are ruined, and there's a couple of witches, and all these corpses are, like, creating corpse mound attacking things. Oh, yeah, they, like, fuse together. Yeah, right? that was that's crazy. So, that's so gross. And that's where I really thought someone was going to die, because they were literally surrounded by mounds of corpses attacking them, and, like, only half of them can use a sword. What is her, what is this author's brain like? Like, <laughs> I just think, like, who comes up with this kind of stuff? It's, it's like, brilliant and terrifying at the same time. Like, I admire it as much as I'm also, like, slightly repulsed by it. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess if you have, like, all the evil people in the world teaming up, there's a lot of evil magic and creatures and ideas for what they can yeah. do. It's just so creative. It is. And again, we've seen so many dead people or ghosts or like I just feel like it's every single time there's like something different about them too and it is just fascinating it's like oh we've dealt with angry hungry ghosts before no this is different this is what you know or like (laughs) yeah (laughs) just when you think you've seen it all (laughs) (laughs) okay and this is the other thing I didn't fully get though because so they did using one of Reika's paper spell things ultimately take down the barrier and then were able to kill the witches And then I feel like a live person just appeared immediately in the warehouse and was like, hey, what are you guys doing here? You need a boat? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, maybe that that was a little too convenient, but... Like, like, I was like, where did he come from? (laughs) They just had to, like, wander through a town covered in zombies, and everyone else is holed up in, like, a sake factory. (laughs) Um, And I didn't, I mean, I didn't even mind that, like... It made sense. I just, like, was expecting him to be, like, in a prison or about to be killed or so. I don't know. I just felt like it was just like, oh, hey, guys, what's up? He just saunters <laughs> up. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know where. I was like, whoa, where did you come from? <laughs> but, yes, they did get a boat. And even that wasn't simple, right? Because they're uh, oh, yeah. traveling via the ocean. Everyone's pretty impressed with the water. Who hasn't seen it before? They meet um, an Omibazu. How do you pronounce Which, that? Also, every creature they see, someone is like, I can't believe, like, this is the worst thing that could happen. But it's like every creature they run into. Um, But yeah, someone was basically like, this is, no ship ever survives. It doesn't say anything. It just like, they don't know if there's one or many, like, they don't know much about them. But they're just these, like, giants that come out of the ocean and destroy ships, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yep, it's a sea spirit. Ooh, okay. Appears to sailors on calm seas which quickly turn tumultuous and then it either breaks the ship on emergence or demands a bucket or barrel from the sailors and proceeds to drown them the only safe way to an escape in umibozu is to give it a bottomless barrel and sail away while it is confused <laughs> this is from wikipedia wait why does it ask for a barrel to drown the sailors so it asks the sailors for something to drown them in i guess that's but I thought it couldn't talk. I'm very confused by this. But this was one of my favorite creatures. I don't know why. I just, like, was imagining this beautiful, like, 
ocean. They've had this like stressful trip. They're, you know, feeling good. They're going to the land of the gods. And then all of a sudden this like huge, it wasn't even the scariest creature by description, but in some ways that made it creepier to me because it Mm -hmm. just like blocked out the sun, you know, like just and had these empty eyes and didn't talk and just, I don't know. And it's one of the few creatures that they actually didn't defeat. Like, yes, they survived, but they didn't destroy it. No. They just got away. Yeah. (laughs) Barely. It kind of reminds me of existing in this time of COVID where, like, the moment you start to enjoy yourself, something (laughs) else bad happens. So you can never let your guard down. Do you mean the time of COVID or do you just mean 2020? Just 2020. (laughs) I actually was sitting outside today with a friend and I said out loud, oh, I'm actually really enjoying myself. And at that moment, a bee flew in my mouth. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Shouldn't even have said it. Yeah, oh, exactly. my goodness. That'll teach you. So, okay. We do get to the Moon Clan, the island. Wait, we even that, you kind of skipped it. Well, I guess oh. we did get to the island. Do you mean we actually made it to the Moon Clan? Well, first we almost died. <laughs> well, after we survived drowning... We almost died in the forest, and, like, Tatsumi basically did die, but got called back by the Kirin, right? Oh, no, I thought it was, um, Yumiko almost died. Oh, sorry, yes, you're right. It was Yumiko. Because Yumiko was wounded, and, and Tatsumi uses the leaf way back when, in the first book, when the Kodoma gave him the leaf yep. and was like, hey, if you ever need a favor, the four spirits will help you. Um, and that's when the Kirin comes, yeah, and saves Yumiko. Good thing he still had that leaf. <laughs> How the heck did he hold on to that the entire time? I know. A leaf? Really? I don't even know where my birth certificate <laughs> is. And he's like, oh, yeah, this little tiny leaf I've kept safe all this time. I've lost all of my magic potions to heal her, but I have this leaf. But it's good. It worked out. And he had, didn't he have an interesting message for her when he brought her back? Oh, yeah. He says, go to the city of sacred beasts and seek out Tsuki Kiyomi, who is the ruler of the Moon Clan. Oh, that wasn't a great message. I mean, I guess it is, but... I mean, it wasn't, like, poetic. It wasn't a haiku. I thought there was more to it than that. <laughs> um, and then what happened? Okay. Oh, she does. She does. She goes to meet uh, Tsuki. And who is she? It's her mom. Oh my gosh, she looks just like you. And they look like twins, Mm -hmm. yeah. Also, did you think it was weird that, so right after she arrives and rejoins with the rest of the crew, Suki also arrives and is looking for Yumiko and doesn't see her. And I thought it was interesting that Suki didn't notice or like confuse the mom with the daughter. Oh yeah. But she didn't. That's okay. Um, so... Should we pause and just talk about what Suki's doing there, too? What is Suki doing there? She, well, she came to visit Dasuke, and she has this really lovely but sad exchange with him where she says that she doesn't blame him for her death, and he was very torn up by that because he held himself responsible for her dying, which was all well and good, but then she spies on Dasuke and Okami again, and these poor Dudes. I know. I feel bad that they can't get any privacy. Not at all. Like, they can't have a moment of of intimacy without someone spying on them. And I guess part of it is just because, although we have multiple perspectives, we've never had a chapter told from either of their perspectives, so the only way we get these moments is if one of the other characters is spying on them. Yeah. 
Um, but Suki was there in part two because, what's his name, Segetsu? Mm-hmm. Can't go to the island and asked if he could, like, use her eyes. View, yeah, view through her eyes or something. And something sketchy happened with the other guy, right? Chaka? Oh, yeah. I don't know. I just still don't trust this guy. There's so many red flags. <sighs> and do we think he's her dad? Okay, so this is a good question because when we meet Kiyoma, she basically says that her husband was an, a man named Toshimoko, and he, like, wasn't a great guy when they first were married, and she never had a child with him. But then she says a few years into their marriage, he changed, and she actually grew to love him, and she grew pregnant, even though they had never been able to have a baby before. Mm-hmm. And when she woke up, she was told the baby and her husband were gone. So... I don't know if Sujitsu is Yumiko's father, but I do think that Yumiko's father was possessed by uh, Kitsune. Well, and don't we think that he is a Kitsune? Don't we think he might be the nine-tailed one that appears oh, in her dreams? Yes. So, okay, so Sujitsu is a Kitsune who possessed Yumiko's father. I think so. I mean, I'm not a hunter. It's not confirmed, but this so is my sense. working theory. I'm pretty sure. And I think that's why he can't go back to the island because somehow he'd be recognized. Oh, yeah. And I mean, she didn't know. She thought that he raised her like just away. Mm-hmm. She didn't know that like the baby had also been abandoned or not abandoned, I guess, but left at the temple and didn't know her own backstory either. I think this is a very good theory and it's probably correct. But I love, I wasn't even expecting to really see her real parents, or at least I hadn't thought about it in a book or two, and I love that she's figuring out more about herself and her background, but part of me also is like, of course she's like basically a princess, and of course, like... (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) But, But it was a little bit bittersweet too, because there's all that she like just met her mom, her mom just met found her daughter again but they don't really have time to bond and there's like all this battling going on and i'm (laughs) nervous that they both survive everything oh you mean when uh gino's demons arrive with flaming wheels of fire and a dragon with eight heads (laughs) and this third general of hell or whatever to go oh right (laughs) yeah and the scorpion twins oh my goodness yeah and probably like 17 (laughs) other things we didn't even see yeah Yeah, way to interrupt a nice family reunion. (laughs) Oh my goodness, that was crazy. This is a cool battle. It was a cool battle, but it was another one of these just so many innocent deaths, and it was really sad because we saw, this was such a cool city, island, place. I love the idea of it's these humans who sort of distance themselves from all the, like, politics and stupid human fighting and they live in peace with the yokai and the kami and um there it just seems like this beautiful place of harmony and peace and all this stuff and it was especially sad to see it under attack i think yeah because it was like a safe haven Mm -hmm. for so many people yokai and humans alike and again you have blood magic people trying to do something crazy with all the people who die yeah you're right it was like a very um it was sad to see something so pure and good be corrupted in such a bad way. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of 
the whole bittersweetness of her meeting her mom, too. I mean, yes, they hopefully will have a chance to really bond before one of them dies. But mm-hmm. it was sort of, yeah, they had, like, this moment. And they're like, oh, you're here. But we don't have time for this. And it was sort of like, oh, this beautiful place. But it's being destroyed. Or I don't know. Mm-hmm. There was just, and it made it almost more heartbreaking to see how beautiful it was and to meet the mom. Like, not just to hear about her, but to, like, meet her but not have the chance to. I don't know. I just, it it was, it really got me, that part. I totally agree. And what also really got me was when one of the Scorpion twins stabbed Rekha. Oh, I did not want Rekha to be the one to die. I knew someone was going to, because like, like you say, there's always yeah. has to be someone who doesn't make it. And yeah, I was really sad for her to be the one to, um, and just because at the end, like she was always the one who was like a little bit skeptical of every plan. And in the end for her mm-hmm. to die and basically say like, that she believed in Yumiko was, like, it was just really heart-wrenching. And I feel like she, again, is sort of not the most responsible, but I feel like she balanced the group really well and always actually did rise to the occasion. Just, like, offered a lot of legitimacy. I don't know. I just, I'm really going to miss her. I She was one of my favorites, even though she was a little bit difficult for, for our main characters but she was skeptical in a good way you know like yeah. she was like always a voice of reason and mm-hmm. she was pure she wasn't fighting for herself which I liked like she no. was it yeah. was a very selfless kind of assistance that she gave and she cared for the crew like yeah she like made some comments and stuff but she did care for everybody and you totally. know I'll miss her for sure and then it ends in this horrible situation where all the kami and all the yokai just start screaming in fear because Jeno himself is arriving, and that's where we ended. Wait, we also didn't talk about what was Tatsumi doing while Reiko was dying. Oh, wasn't he fighting the general? Akumo, or Akumu. And then who showed up? Oh, Lady Hanshu! Yeah, and, and all the shinobi and crew of the Cage family. Tatsumi's... Sensei, yeah, yeah, the hero came. So again, now we're aligned, but we still don't fully trust them, but at least I think she is still trying to get the scroll. What do you think? Lady Hanshu, for yeah. sure. Yeah. It's an, again, it's another like uneasy alliance where it's like the enemy of my enemy is my friend, but how long can that last? Because they all want different things and like, yes, you can join together to defeat a common enemy, but then what? And we only have half a book left, which I guess makes sense because I do feel like the day is tomorrow or like, the, <laughs> like we're right there. The night where the summoning happens or doesn't happen is like mm-hmm. right here. <laughs> it's tomorrow. It's today. <laughs> We've made it. Uh. Um, so I, <laughs> this isn't related to my research, but last week you asked me if we could write haikus about our podcasts. Oh, yeah. I wrote and one. I wrote one. Please share. It's so bad. <laughs> okay. This is a haiku about our podcast. <laughs> Forgetting all names, we just hit yeah. record and pray. Dogs bark endlessly. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> I think it sums us up pretty well. Forgetting names <laughs> is story of my life. Anyway, what did you research this week? So I love Okami, as we know. And once again, he just has some great lines. And when they are hiding from the masked zombie corpses and they hide in that 
sake brewery place and he's like or oh, or we could just help them drink the sake or i guess we can go defeat the evil people and then i don't know just like he always has these comments but i actually was curious to know more about sake like i've had sake mm-hmm. before but i don't know that much about like what makes it unique or i don't know much about sake itself so i looked up a little bit about sake for bonding with okami that was my reason <laughs> that was it. the goal i like it <laughs> yes so, um, sake is sometimes referred to as rice wine mm-hmm. in English-speaking countries, but it is more similar to beer than it is to wine. Oh. Which I thought was kind of interesting. So, rice wine is made from the fermentation of rice, and Western wine is made from the fermentation of grapes. And although sake is made from rice, it's really more of a brewing process that converts starch to alcohol, which is similar mm. to what you do when you make beer. Yeah, because it's more of a, it's a grain rather than a fruit. Yeah, true. It also just sounds like a very involved process. So first you strip the rice of protein and oils by doing something called polishing it, and then you wash it and air dry it. Oh. And then after it's steamed, uh, koji is kneaded into the rice either by hand or by machines, which and koji is like a mold that helps convert the starch to sugar. Mm, so it like starts the fermentation. Yeah, ultimately turn it into alcohol in a two-step fermentation process. And the second fermentation stage lasts 25 to 30 days, depending on the kind of sake you're making. Mm. And during this time, they like the brewers have to keep close watch of the batch at all times of day and night and adjust temperature and ingredients as needed. And then the last stage, which is called the Joso stage, the rice mash is pressed and then it's bottled. So just, I mean, I don't make a lot of alcohol anyways, but I didn't know there were so many steps involved. Yeah. I don't know how that compares to like brewing beer or wine. I've never done either. I actually have, I did like a beer brewing class once. It didn't take 25 to 30 days, or at least not of, (laughs) like, I think we did something and then we had to, like, leave it in the fridge for a month maybe, but Mm. we didn't have to, like, check the temperature or add things to it in between. (laughs) So, sake brewmasters have an official title in Japan called Toji. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. That's cool. But the Toji is not only responsible for the taste of the brew, but also for making sure that, like, the team lives in harmony during long winter months of work and communal living. And so it's sort of like a parental figure on the team, and they will take on an apprentice for decades that they'll mentor in, like, the traditional skills of sake making. I love the idea of someone whose job it is not not to just, like, oversee things, but to, like, ensure harmony. Yeah. And I love that idea. Yeah, it's not just, like, operational right Right. so there's a big aspect of communal living i guess for a lot of sake Mm -hmm. creation so a lot of workers will spend from october to mid-april living on site away from family and friends to oversee sake creation at least in some of the like um homemade like traditional versions yeah that's insane i mean yeah you could see there there definitely be like arguments that would arise and yeah. I don't know. I would feel like if there was really bad energy, too, it would affect the outcome of the sake, personally. I also feel like you have tensions even just going to the office with people, right? And then add on top of that, like, you actually live together and, like, rely on each other for everything. Of course there's going to – you need someone to, like, keep the peace. And I think you're right. I feel like that's true for anything that is, like, 
a labor intensive creation Mm -hmm. it like picks up the energy of what's around it sort of (laughs) absolutely uh so the alcohol by volume of beer is typically between three and nine percent and wine is typically between nine and sixteen percent but sake is upwards of 18 to 20 percent so it's more it has higher alcohol content than either beer or wine okay it's the oldest known spirit in the world so some (sighs) think that sake dates back to 4800 bc china um but it wasn't until 300 bc that it came to japan Mm. and since then it's kind of been associated most heavily with japan Mm-hmm. And by the 1300s, breweries were built that allowed for mass production of sake. So since the 1300s, it has been mass produced. And then the Industrial Revolution brought machines that helped do the work that villagers used to do by hand. And in 1904, Japan created a research institute to study the best means of fermenting rice oh. for sake. It was once considered women's work. And actually, toji, like the origin of the word, looks really similar to a Japanese word that means an independent woman. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Yeah, isn't that cool? Um, But now it, like since the late 16th and early 17th centuries, men have largely taken over sake production. It can be served cold, room temperature, or hot. Uh, So even though you don't usually drink warm beer on purpose, you may heat sake on purpose. And temperature influences the taste. So if it's warmer, it'll taste like a drier flavor. Uh, it's rude to pour your own glass of sake. So oh. if you serve yourself, it, like superstition is that you don't trust your host to take care of you. Ooh. So a lot of sake drinking tradition is focused on friendship and pouring for a friend and letting them do the same for you is an act of bonding that's part of a lot of like wedding traditions and New Year traditions and other celebrations. And does just like the ratio affect the flavor too? Like is it the amount of koji and rice? Is that how you get like different varieties? Oh, yes, I'm sure yeast is also involved in the flavor because different strains of yeast Mm. have their own aroma and taste and and whatnot. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot more that goes into it, even how much polishing of the rice you do. So I guess like the lowest grade sakis, you polish the rice only 30% where the highest grades are like 50% polished. That's so cool. I don't don't really know what that means, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of... That's why you have to study with a toji for decades to to really uh, get yeah. Master, yeah. Sign me up. Yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting. I again have had sake before, but uh, mostly I remember just how fun it was to do sake bombs and like pound the table and drop sake into a beer. Yep. But uh, I didn't really know a lot about the traditional aspect of it. And again, Okami just loves his sake, so I, I wanted to learn a little bit more. I think he would be proud. He'd be proud of your <laughs> research. <laughs> He'd be like, now let's taste test. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so I researched dragons. Ooh, yay. Because I, I mean, this whole book, we've been waiting for the great Kami dragon to appear. And I just wanted to know a little bit more about dragons in general before that happened. That's smart. So we'll be prepared when we're reading this time. Exactly. So um, what's really interesting, I think, is that the idea of dragons as like a mythological creature is in so many cultures like Mm -hmm. the americas europe india china africa like they appear in pretty much every corner of the globe that's awesome and so it's it's kind of like a question like well how did all of these people who were not connected really in any way so early on have all these legends of dragons Mm -hmm. and one of the explanations is that when 
people were, you know, working the fields or clearing fields, they came across really large bones from dinosaurs or other prehistoric beasts. And they had no knowledge of dinosaurs or they had no explanation. And so they invented these enormous creatures that they thought were dragons. I mean, to be fair, that's kind of close to accurate. I feel like dinosaurs kind of were like dragons. (laughs) Absolutely. And like, if you have no idea what to make of these giant bones that you've just unearthed, like, it seems like a logical choice that he would say, oh, this is a dragon. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine digging up a giant bone and being like where did this come from and like not having a good concept of like extinction and like back in the day like it would be cool enough even today but to be like oh my goodness like something was here (laughs) yeah um there there was a case in in sicily and sardinia where people unearthed giant mammoth skulls and they thought they were cyclopses that's like the only thing they could understand it as because it looked like just this massive skull with one opening, and they thought it was a single eye socket. How big are they? Mam- a mammoth skull. I mean, I think they're larger than elephants. Giant? Yeah. Yeah, huge. Massive. But it's so interesting, like, where the tusks were looks like just one gigantic eye socket, so they hmm. were like, oh, it's a cyclops. I mean, again, I follow this logic. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the earliest story of dragons being recorded actually is in... I mean, a really, really long time ago, but it's basically ancient Sumeria. Um, so in Mesopotamia, like which is now essentially southeastern Iraq, like before the Babylonians, there was a major figure in ancient mythology that described a god named Marduk. And he was the most important god of the area. He was called the Great Lord and the Lord of Heaven and Earth. So in this tale of creation, it's, it's essentially a creation tale. So Marduk defeated the goddess Tiamat in battle. And Tiamat was the goddess of the salt sea and her mate was the god of freshwater. And she is like the symbol of chaos. So like, um, what's it called? Primordial chaos, I think it's called. It's like the void state of the world before the world was created if that makes sense. Like chaos. Okay. Like you hear mm-hmm. like chaos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just utter, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so Tiamat took the form of a dragon and she assembled an army of dragons to attack the god Marduk, but he was able to defeat her. What he did was he commanded the winds to enter Tiamat's mouth and puff up her body. He then killed her with an arrow that split her into two halves. With one half, he created the heavens and with the other, the earth. And then he also created the Euphrates and Tigris rivers, rain, clouds, and mountains from Tiamat's body. I always think it's so interesting when there's like multi-steps involved in something. First, I'm going to fill her with hand <laughs> or air or whatever. And then I'm going to split her in two with an arrow. <laughs> so that was like one of the earliest recordings of dragons. But dragons obviously also existed in Chinese culture from very, very early on. But What's interesting is in Chinese culture, dragons symbolized imperial rule and good fortune. So it was believed that dragons brought the rain and were crucial to the harvest. And in, I guess, in the Chinese zodiac, the dragon years are the most auspicious. So it's kind of interesting because, like, dragons had this really positive connotation in Chinese culture. But when Christianity spread, like, around the world, 
um, dragons, their reputation changed and became much more sinister because they came to represent Satan, essentially. Because Christians were like, oh, these people don't believe in Christ and they like dragons? Um, <laughs> essentially, so I think um, it, it comes from Leviathan is like a monster described in the Bible... In the Book of Leviathan, they described the dragon. It was the first time that someone described a dragon as breathing fire. So in the description, it said its eyes are like the rays of dawn. Flames stream from its mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from its nostrils as from a boiling pot over burning reeds. Essentially, it's like this massive monster that is like representative of evil. And then also like the story of St. George and the dragon, which is like there was a dragon attacking a town and he agreed to save the town and kill the dragon, but only if the town converted to Christianity. So it was like, kind of became a symbol for, for evil and Satan and, you know, slaying the dragon was essentially like defeating evil, defeating yeah. evil and converting people to Christianity. I have a mostly unrelated question for you. So what is 2020 in terms of Chinese years? The plague. I don't know. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> like, I'm guessing it's not the year of the dragon, but do you have any idea what it is this year? Let me see. It must be a very unlucky one. It is the rat. The metal rat. What year were you? Do you know? I was a horse. I was an ox. <laughs> Ooh, ox sounds cool. Does it? <laughs> sounds like strong and... Wadding. Get things done. <laughs> the horse is a little bit more elegant. I wish I had that. <laughs> anyway, um... Sorry, I got you off topic. No, that's totally fine. Um, Dragons also became a symbol of adventure and like almost a reward for like brave knights defeating the dragon. It was more of like a symbolic Mm -hmm. creature rather than a real creature. So like the the word dragon actually comes from the Greek word drakonta, which means to watch. And that's kind of where you get the idea of like dragons guarding treasure Hmm. was like a common theme. But it's more of like a reward for people who would defeat the dragon, could get this like treasure. And it was more like metaphorically speaking. Um, What's interesting though is that the um, description of dragons differs a lot depending on where you're from. So there are some dragons that are multiple colors. Uh, So some dragons have wings, some don't, some can breathe fire, some are very small and some can span miles. Um, in India, it's common for dragons to have features of many beasts. So like the head of an elephant is common, um, or in, in the Middle East, the head of a lion or the head of a, a falcon mm-hmm. or like a bird of prey is common. Apparently, this is very strange, but apparently there was also a belief that you could use dragons to raise armies. So there was... A method that was described by the king of Thebes, Cadmus, the king of Thebes. He was the founder and the first king of Thebes in Greek mythology. So in order to use dragon teeth to expand your armed forces, what you would do was you would prepare a piece of ground as though sowing for grain. Then you just have to catch and kill any convenient dragon and pull out all its teeth. (laughs) Oh, no problem. And then you bury these teeth in the soil, cover it lightly, and then stand far away. (laughs) They said, next, veteran warriors clad in bronze armor and armed with swords and shields will emerge rapidly from the earth 
and stand in ranks according to the way in which the dragon's teeth were sewn. And apparently they will start attacking anything in their path right away, so you should get out of the way very quickly. So I thought that was kind of funny use of, like, dragon's teeth. I had never heard that before. No, that is fascinating. So, yeah, that was my research about dragons. Love it. I'm, But none of those dragons changed the destiny of the world for a thousand years, correct? No, that was all Julie Kagawa. <laughs> So I am still, I still feel like, I just want to like, I hope the dragon talks and has a personality because in my mind, he does. <laughs> I feel like it will. I hope so. Um, any other predictions for the last half of the book? Mm. <sighs> Who's going to get the scroll? I have no idea. Who's going to die still? Do you think Yumiko, Tatsumi, the Ronin, and Desuki? Do you think they'll all live? I don't know. I feel like someone else still has to die, but I really don't want anyone else to. Me too. Well, I, I don't mind if Lady Hanshu dies. And Sujetsu. Yeah. I don't know if he can die. Okay, he needs to get called out for something. I hope that his ex-wife <laughs> is like, what the hell, dude? What the heck? Yeah, exactly. I hope she d- says the same thing. Yeah, because um, they have some history to resolve there for sure. And I hope before Lady Hanshu dies, we get more of her story too. But isn't she immortal? So can she die? I'm confused by that too. Good question. Um, Maybe Yumiko gets the scroll and her wish is to destroy Lady Hanshu and Geno. And maybe all demons all together. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know who will get it. I just really don't want Okami or Desuke to die. Yeah, they finally like learn how to communicate (laughs) i know but i really have no idea how it's gonna end yeah i don't know either i mean i guess someone has to call the dragon right i mean will it be jenno i don't know i bet i bet they'll get there just when jenno calls the dragon and it will the dragon will come and then they'll fight over who gets to make the wish because don't you i mean you have to recite a thousand prayers like you can't do that in the span of a second like there's gonna be time i think for people to intervene yeah, but I feel like I don't want anyone to make a wish. Not even... What about Yumiko? I mean, like, if anyone, I guess Yumiko, but I kind of want her to stay out of it. Like, I feel like making a wish is messing with the world in a way you shouldn't or something. I want Yumiko to make, like, a really harmless wish. Like, I wish for the teapot to start dancing or something like that. <laughs> like, just her playful kitsune nature and it to be, like, something completely innocuous. Except I feel like the one thing we've learned from all of the wishes we've ever read about, is they always have unintended consequences. True. <laughs> but I want to see the dragons. <laughs> Maybe she'll, like, wish Reika back from the dead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or, oh, oh! I bet I know what happens. What? I bet yeah. Okami and Desuke die to, like, satisfy um, the prophecy in, or whatever. battle. Mm-hmm. And then Yumiko wishes them back. But then I also feel like that's, like, even though I want that messing with things in a bad way right you can't just bring people back why not they haven't been dead that long yeah exactly (laughs) okay that sounds good to me (laughs) we'll see probably between now and then we'll have like 17 other creatures besides a dragon to defeat exactly (laughs) um whose turn is it to tell a joke i have one i have one too okay so why do writers always feel cold oh i don't know because they're surrounded by drafts Oh my god, that's so good. (laughs) (laughs) But it reminds me of one of my favorite, like, dad responses is if you say you're feeling cold, 
like, oh, I'm cold. And then a dad response is to be like, go stand in the corner. They're always about 90 degrees. Oh my God, I've never heard that. (laughs) I love that one. (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. You know what? My dad would never have said that to me because I was not great at math. (laughs) Like that would have gone right over my head. (laughs) He knew his audience. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, if you guys want to get in touch with us, you can email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at MNK Talk YA. Let's finish this series. Yeah, have a book. Let's call the dragon. Let's see the Night of the Dragon. I can't wait. <laughs> All right, bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.